Welcome to Babel, Translating the Middle East, a podcast from the Middle East program at CSIS. Here on Babel, we take you beyond the headlines to take a closer look at what's happening in the Middle East and why it matters. To translate some of what's happening in the Middle East, this is Babel. In today's episode, John speaks with Tariq Youssef, a senior fellow at Brookings, about the impact of COVID-19 on the Middle East. Then John McKinley and I talk about how the spread of COVID-19 is affecting middle-income countries in the region. We're talking today with Tariq Youssef. He's a senior fellow at Brookings. He's a former assistant professor of economics at Georgetown University and an old friend of mine. Tariq, welcome to Babel. Thank you, John. Good speaking to you. The region is currently in the middle of this COVID-19 crisis, but what was the picture of the region before the COVID-19 crisis? You're a serious economist of the region. You've written about labor and demographics and governance. What was the snapshot two months ago? I would say that's exactly the starting point one wants to answer that question with. Just to provide perspective, a couple of months ago, like thousands of other people. I attended the annual meetings of the IMF and the World Bank in Washington. And the projections at the time, the outlook for the region in 2020, a reasonably positive one. Certainly, there'll be more growth. There'll be more trade, even in the middle of an uncertain economic, global economic outlook. Banks will uh, be in a better position to provide credit. By and large, 2020, Everyone looked forward to it and everyone expected would be a good year for the region. It's hard to describe how one feels or how much that outlook has changed, John, in just a couple of months. We're at the end of March and we've just been hit by two huge shocks related to some extent, but one of which is maybe man-made. We've got the COVID-19 shock and we've got this spectacular collapse in oil prices, both of which I think are going to shape the trajectory of economic activity, social peace, political stability, not to mention, of course, the the, the macroeconomics around all of this, perhaps not just for 2020, but for a long time to come. Who do you think is going to be the most effective and how do you think it's going to affect them, both in terms of countries, but also in terms of, of categories of people? So in terms of countries, I think the countries that do not have availability of discretionary resources to either fall back on or to draw from, countries without sovereign wealth funds, without sizable levels of foreign reserves, are going to be the countries that are going to feel the pain immediately. Uh, And that applies pretty much to most of the non-oil exporting countries and even some of the large oil exporting countries with big populations. So other than say Saudi Arabia, the UAE and Qatar and Kuwait, everyone else is going to be feeling uh, the pressure soon. Different magnitudes, the scale is different, the needs are different, but it's going to be really about how do you stabilize government when in fact what COVID-19 requires you to do is to compensate for the loss of economic activity the most at this particular moment. So on the one hand, think of Egypt, think of uh, Morocco, think of uh, Tunisia, think of Jordan, but also Iraq and Iran and and Algeria. And Lebanon. Not to mention the countries that are... And Lebanon. Do you think any countries are going to perform well? I don't think anybody's going to come out of this one. It's hard to see uh, 
uh, even the countries that have access to resources, you know, the UAE, Saudi Arabia, and Qatar, uh, these resources uh, are going to come under strain. These countries had big plans for 2020, rebounded big infrastructure programs, uh, and they had a whole a host of other commitments that they needed to look after. So we're already seeing it, John. We're seeing even the rich countries in the region that have room for maneuver begin to reduce their commitments, especially capital spending. And one of the things we've seen in the region is that the wealthier Gulf countries have often given funds to poorer countries in the region, whether they're countries like Lebanon, Jordan, Egypt. Um, do you think the future of intra-regional transfers will be? Are, are these countries going to stop supporting traditional partners? And, and what does that mean for the traditional partners? Quite frankly, John, I think many of them have stopped supporting their traditional partners. Um, don't take my word for it. Go talk to people in Lebanon, in Jordan, and even in Egypt and Sudan. The Gulf countries have not been extending the levels of external aid and support in the way that you know, we got used to in the in the 80s and 90s, even under very difficult circumstances at the time. Uh, this is partly due to the very fragmented geopolitical and overall security-driven foreign policy arrangements within the region. I mean, the Arab world has fragmented, and everything is viewed through a political prism, and uh, everything has a price. Uh, I would say, uh, unfortunately, unfortunately, one of the very uh, worrying aspects about this particular downturn is that it's hitting everyone. So no one is 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 going to be immune. And it's coming at a time when uh, so-called intra-Arab integration or regional integration is at a low point, uh, if one can, can, can characterize it as that. And it also comes at a time when it feels like the world is deciding that the Middle East either is or will be of less geostrategic significance than it's been. And you see that partly in the United States, but also it seems to me more broadly that there's a, a sense not only of fatigue with the Middle East around the world, but, but and a sense of, of danger coming out of the Middle East, but also a sense that, that there may be alternatives to the Middle East emerging. How does, that, how does that feel in the Middle East if it's no longer as much of a focus of the world's attention as it's been? I think people are, are beginning to grapple with this. And countries and officials and policymakers uh, at the highest level everywhere are, are recognizing that the region no longer commands that strategic significance and that the region's problems are not going to mobilize the sort of attention and global relative to, let's say, a decade or, or two ago. Uh, that's making it very difficult for a lot of countries to sort of set. I saw the biggest warning signal of this recently when Lebanon began to sort of melt down economically. A few months ago, it took weeks, if not months, before the complete meltdown or the, the beginning of the complete meltdown of Lebanon's economy and financial system began to elicit any attention abroad. It was as if uh, the world had decided that Lebanon should sort its problems on its own or perhaps call on its regional partners uh, in its neighborhood uh, to help it. It is partly hostility to Iran. It has a lot to do with how how people view Hezbollah and internal Lebanese politics. But the magnitude of this economic crisis and the potential spillover effects of it, you know, not just in Lebanon, but in the neighborhood, you know, traditionally, you know, based on historical record, you would, have, you would have seen the IMF knocking on their doors on oh, week one or week two to at least just discuss the problem with them, sit down and see options for helping them out. So I've often known you to be an optimist. And when people were wringing their hands about 
rising youth in, uh, populations in the Middle East, you were saying, well, that's great because you have a, a large productive population that can enter the workforce. Your dependency ratios go down. This is actually an opportunity for the Middle East. Are there any opportunities that you see that can be seized, that can be capitalized on coming out of the region's broader situation, coming out of this COVID-19 crisis? You pose a great question, John, and I wish I had the answer. At minimum, I I should be more optimistic than I am at the moment. So I think like you, the COVID-19 impact is going to be much larger than people uh, expect. And I think to the extent that oil prices remain where they are today for a long period of time and and the impact of COVID-19 pandemic lasts with us. Where the region goes from here, I think, is is going to be driven by, uh, you know, a number of other trends that the region does not control. Uh, how does the U.S. continue to view the region and either choose to engage more or engage less? What happens as power, the rivalries that are emerging in the region uh, between Turkey and, say, Saudi Arabia and the UAE on the one hand, Iran on the other hand, how do these work themselves out. Uh, how do some of these transitions underway in places like uh, Sudan and, and Algeria get managed and and how do they evolve over time? It sounds almost like you're predicting at least the possibility of a new Arab Spring. Certainly, as we talked about, the Gulf states, which tried to stabilize the region with resources in 2011, may not have those resources at hand to deploy to the region this time. If understanding that the future is very hard to predict, how do you think it is most likely to be different from what we saw in 2011? We saw how that played out. If you were to look at the different factors, what's likely to be really different this time? You asked another great question, John, and one that we should all be thinking about. So I, when I think of, of 2000, you know, Arab Spring 1.0, let's, let's call it that in 2011. Very spontaneous, came largely unexpected and, and was led initially by, by the youth of this region. I think the protests of 2018-19 and the ones that are likely to happen in 2020 are not going to be about the calls for you know good governance and democracy and inclusion in the way that maybe 2011, these slogans became more widely shared and dominant across the region. I think the current round is is really about livelihoods. Uh, It's about people feeling vulnerable, people feeling completely unanchored to uh, safety nets, precarious uh, jobs, degradation and standards of living. The 2019 and maybe the 2020 protests are going to be driven by a lot of anger and outrage. And that raises the possibility for them to be much more uh, uh, destabilizing, much more violent. That is the big worry I have. Uh, Governments have very little room for maneuver to buy time or to throw resources at emerging problems. Uh, And given where COVID-19 is and given where the region's outlook has changed dramatically overnight, I worry that those who feel economically vulnerable, and they are a growing segment of the population in the region, are going to be a a much more potent destabilizing and a violent force that shapes uh, a lot of political and security outcomes in the region and in the near future. It's people who feel that they've they've just lost out uh, and they are losing out. And if you take the macroeconomic 
initial conditions we're talking about right now into account and ask yourself the question, what's likely to happen to this segment? And I know you spoke about this a couple of days ago, you know, day laborers, people in the informal sector, uh, small uh, mom and, uh, and, and pop shop owners, small, medium-sized enterprises. There is no stimulus package coming for these guys. Uh, governments can do that even if they wanted to do it. And so to the extent that these conditions persist for a while, I, I worry, I worry. Again, I'm speculating. I'm, I'm trying to think intelligently about this. But I'm taking what happened in 2018 and 19 as also a, a data point that one should not ignore. Park Yusuf, thank you very much for talking with us. John, it's always a pleasure talking to you. Next up, John McKinley and I discuss how COVID-19 is affecting middle-income countries. Tarek talked about how countries like the UAE or Saudi Arabia have different capabilities for dealing with the ramifications of COVID-19 than middle-income or low-income countries like Egypt or Lebanon. What did the economy of middle-income countries in the region look like before the crisis? A lot of these governments were trying to create jobs. They were trying to improve the business sector. These things were expensive and on the agenda to start with. Countries like Jordan had gotten funding facility from the IMF to try to to get ahead of its debt problems. But now suddenly you have a, a large number of expenses. You have banks that are, are struggling for solvency. Countries that already had difficult tasks ahead of them face much more difficult tasks than they faced even six weeks ago. I think that's true. I think there were a few small signs of positive uh, movement in some of these economies. I think Jordan's uh, tourism sector was actually improving. Uh, I think in 2018, it had it had increased 10% on the year before. And places like Lebanon as well were trying very hard to encourage tourists to come back. Tourism is a really big part of lots of these countries' economies. And they had been um, really devastated by a combination of factors, by the Syrian conflict, by sort of general fears of instability in the region. And I think another sort of general trend which we saw was governments were trying to cut back on subsidies. Places like Egypt trying to uh, scale back its food subsidies, bread subsidies, um, things like that, in order to access some of those loans that John was talking about, the loans from the IMF. Uh, some of the measures that they were taking were very unpopular with the people, but were considered painful measures that were necessary to be able to have sort of healthier economies overall. So how have you guys seen that change to now? Are there any examples of what this is looking like for people who live in Egypt or Lebanon or Jordan today? To start with, you've seen a reluctance of governments to impose some of these uh, uh, social distancing requirements. Egypt was, was slow coming, even though Egypt was the source of some of the earlier outbreaks. Jordan had to roll back some of the restrictions as people felt that they couldn't get access to food. And Will's... You can talk about friends you've spoken to. It seems that the restrictions in Lebanon are actually being enforced. Yeah, that's that's what I've heard, at least in places like Beirut. There is a sense that a lot of people have, have really adhered to these restrictions. I mean, in part because they've had to. So all restaurants and bars have, have closed down, non-essential businesses have closed down. And so far, I think Lebanon has looked like it's able to to deal with the cases of people who've contracted COVID-19. The Rafiq Hariri Hospital in Beirut is the one I think that it's been set up to deal with most of the cases. And so far, it's able to cope with the numbers. The fear, of course, is that it may quite quickly become overwhelmed. And so then you're hearing things like Hezbollah. Uh, we're talking about emergency contingency measures to, to try and deal with much higher cases, including turning some resorts and hotels into hospitals. 
capital. So I think Lebanon is certainly bracing for what it thinks is going to be an incredibly severe health crisis. The, one of the features of this crisis is that the Lebanese lira has collapsed and that people are no longer able to withdraw US dollars from ATMs. You can pay for anything in, in lira or in dollars and there was a fixed rate. That's kind of gone out the window now and people are really struggling to access dollars. This also um, impacts some people from the upper middle classes. I have a friend whose younger brother is having to come back from Germany where he was studying because the Lebanese lira doesn't go as far. So things have just got a whole lot more expensive. And the other piece, of course, is that for people who can't even afford to send their kids overseas, there are a lot of people in all these countries in what's called the informal sector. They are not on anybody's payroll. They make money as peddlers. They do services. They do other things. When the society shuts down, people in the informal sector who don't have employers have nobody to watch their back and, and nobody to buy their food and nobody to do all those things. Some countries have been a little more forward-leaning, providing nutritional baskets to people and making sure people don't starve. But this is something we've seen in India, we've seen in other places, that there are a lot of people who, in the best of times, live a pretty precarious existence. And this is true in many cases of Syrian refugees who aren't allowed to work in formal establishments. And a lot of those people find themselves without any cushion when the society shuts down and people can't move around. John, you just mentioned the, the food baskets. That's something that that the Lebanese government is trying to do, and it set up a national solidarity fund. But that fund is based on in-kind and monetary donations from businesses, from wealthy individuals. I mean, that is the most basic social support safety net of providing food and basic items required for sanitation. That's being funded by private individuals and is on, on the basis of donations. So I think that kind of gets at the severity of some of the problems for these countries where the governments just don't have the money to provide any kind of services or sort of emergency services in, in these times. If states can't meet the rising need of their populations in the same way that they were able to before, what impact could this have on people's attitudes towards their governments? Yeah, I don't think there are a lot of people outside of the Gulf who feel great about their governments in the Middle East. It certainly will exacerbate tensions that are already there. It will raise complaints of governmental incompetence. As Tark suggested, it may create a, a sort of economic populism of people who insist on distributing resources differently. I think people have been warning of instability in Jordan for a long time, um, and Jordan somehow manages to keep going. But I think when we were doing research there recently, the level of economic hardship was really clear uh, kind of across a whole wide range of people that we were speaking to. And I think there really is a growing feeling that people have no one to turn to. And so I do think that we're likely to see more people taking to the streets, certainly after these uh, restrictions have been eased, because people are angry and they feel that they have no one else to turn to. But the question then is to what effect? And you know, one of the, the lessons learned from the Arab uprisings of 2011 was that organization actually matters. One of the problems of spontaneous protests is it's hard to convert 
the support into political change because you don't have the infrastructure for an organization that can take control, that can bargain, that can represent the views of the, the people in the streets. I'm not sure people have figured out an answer to that. So we might have instability, but whether the instability prompts change or whether the instability just begets more instability and greater poverty is something we're going to have to watch very closely. And that's something that Tarek said in, in the interview as well about a fear that this new wave of protests could be driven more by anger and outrage and could become more violent. And I think if people do feel that there isn't a prospect of positive change, then that is a very real fear to have. Are there any notes of optimism about how this could inspire positive change in the region? One of the things that, that this may lead to is a more permanent change in the way business is done in the region. And, and some of that may not all be bad. One of the things people have talked about in the United States is this gets people to doing more things online. It gets more virtual presence. And that's certainly true in the Middle East as well. In many ways, women in the Middle East have had to do this because in, in countries in the Gulf and elsewhere, they have not been as free to leave their house to be totally engaged in business. And this could normalize more of the areas which give equal opportunity to women, which give equal opportunity to people outside of cities, which really distribute opportunities in the region to people who, for reasons of family background or location or something else, can't fully participate and more virtual economic opportunities could actually provide some more opportunities to people elsewhere in the region. The broader macroeconomic environment, though, it seems like it's going to go through a, a very difficult period. There are certain to be some bright spots, but overall, it looks like the region is going to have a very difficult time. Thank you both for joining me over Skype on this week's episode of Babel, Translating the Middle East. We hope to be back in the studio in the coming weeks, but in the meantime, tune in next week for a meze on moral education in the UAE. Awesome. Thanks for listening to Babbel. If you liked what you heard here, please subscribe to our podcast at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. You can find more analysis about this topic linked in the show notes, and you can find us on Twitter at CSIS Mideast. East.